Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. And my name is Todd Hicksonball, a.k.a. The Todd Father. And we have a great episode for you today. Actually, I'm bringing you a great episode because Todd is not a part of this conversation, unfortunately. Well, you know, do you have to always bring that up? I actually do. Um, Because especially this week, we're talking with David Epstein, who is the author of a couple of books, one being The Sports Gene, and then um, actually his latest book called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, releases today. I actually feel like his last name is Epstein, but that's fine. You're probably right. Anyway, he... I probably am. He has written for uh, Sports Illustrated. He's an investigative reporter. And, man, we just had a really fascinating conversation, and we're going to get into that in uh, just a few minutes. Um, But before we do that, we want to remind you that we also have our Learner's Corner recommended resource of the week. And I actually have it this week, Todd, believe it or not. Uh Uh-oh. Okay. I'm going to bet that it is a book. Ooh, you bet wrong. It's actually a, it's actually a podcast. It's from one of our favorite podcasts called the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Okay. And Which episode? It's the one that he did with Andrew Stanley recently. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a great episode. Yeah, because they talk with him about um, getting into comedy and being a comedian and moving um, – and really just moving into the career of comedy away from he used to be in finance and everything. And it's probably one of the most, um, I don't know, what would you say? Like, it's a very good breakdown of of how to incorporate humor more, wouldn't you say? Yeah, well, so it's it was so much more than just, I, I mean, okay, great episode. Let's start, let's start there. Um, but it was so much more to me than just, than just that. Um, because it, I mean, they got into talking about style, and and they got into you know where you know what and what Andrew took from his dad Andy, and what what he took from his from his grandfather Charles, and and just kind of his process of how he kind of took all that stuff and has put it together now, and has turned it into um, and incorporated it all into his into his act, and so it was it was great, and he dropped some resources in there as well. He had a podcast that helped him he started listening to it to help him figure out comedy and where to start it, i loved it i really did it, it was really helpful so that's our learner's corner recommended resource of the week now as we talked about earlier today we are talking with david epstein about his book range and so here is our conversation with david do it to it well david we are so excited to have you on the learner's corner podcast today thank you very much for having me yeah, you've written this book called Range, Why Generalists, Generalists tri- Triumph in a Specialized World. And I'm just curious as we get started, you know, has this been something that you've always been interested in? Or where, where did this idea um, come for you to write this book? It, it's definitely not something I was always interested in and sort of came out of two things. First of all, a little bit of my own career, I guess. Um you know, part of the book writes about people taking zigzagging career paths. And I was totally sure what I wanted to do by the time I was a teenager, which was be a test pilot and uh, an astronaut and and didn't do those things. Um, and then, you know, I got to got to college and thought I was going to study political science and ended up studying geology and astronomy. And then I went to science grad school and somehow ended up being a writer at Sports Illustrated. And so I sort of started to realize 
that, you know, my, my own plans never really came to fruition. I ended up with this interesting array of experiences and it was usually some oddball thing I had done that really helped me in whatever I was doing. So some of it was just interest in my own career path, but more concretely, it came out of, in a way, my previous book, The Sports Gene, where I was writing about the the impact of genetics on athleticism, and that brought me into a debate with Malcolm Gladwell, um, uh, the writer who famously um, wrote about the 10,000 hours rule, and we were pitted in this debate at MIT called 10,000 hours versus the sports gene, um, even though you know we have middle ground. Um, and it was about the development of elite athletes. And I knew he was going to argue that a head start, a very focused head start in early specialization is an insurmountable advantage. And so to prepare for that debate, I looked through all the research available on the development of athletes and saw that in fact, the athletes who go on to become elite typically, uh, have what sports scientists call a sampling period where they play an array of different sports. They gain a breadth of general skills. They learn about their own interests and abilities, and they systematically delay specialization until later than their peers who plateau at lower levels. So I called this in the debate, the Roger versus Tiger problem. So Tiger Woods, we know was very early specialization. Roger Federer, totally the opposite. Mother wouldn't allow him to specialize, forced him to continue playing badminton, basketball, and soccer while his peers were specializing. And so my question was sort of, which one of these is the norm? And it turned out it was the Roger model. And from there, you know, I started thinking about, again, my own career and saying, gosh, maybe it would be worth examining whether the Roger versus, you know, or Tiger model is more typical uh, in other industries. And so, so the book proposal initially was titled Roger versus Tiger, because that's kind of the analogy um, I wanted to use to look at whether it's this going broad first or specializing first is uh, is the best developmental path in different domains. So I want to go back to um, what you had mentioned of being in this debate with Malcolm Gladwell. What were you feeling whenever like that started getting set up? Were you nervous at all? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I was the science writer at Sports Illustrated and I was doing this book project sort of on the side for my own interests, basically not thinking it was going to well, not thinking that I guess as many people were interested in some of the topics I was interested in. And then it sort of took on this life of its own. And I remember the first time I was doing like a, you know, small event at a bookstore in New York and somebody, um, you know, I, I critique some of Gladwell's work in, in the sports gene and someone came into that event and said, oh, I just saw Malcolm Gladwell reading your book at like a cafe. And I was like, oh God, I'm dead. You know, he's going to just like Bigfoot me. But, um, that was partially helpful because since I was, he's so clever and I didn't want to get embarrassed, I really did, did a lot of homework for the debate. And it's on YouTube, 10,000 Hours Versus the Sports Gene. Um, and, you know, I think it went quite well. And in fact, we became running buddies after that and would have some of these conversations on our own time. Um, and, and we just were invited back for the first, so that first debate was in 2014. And we were just invited back in March to the same conference at MIT to talk again. And this one's also on YouTube. And he basically says at the end, you changed my mind. Um, so I was happy about that. <laughs> you yeah. know, and, I, and, I'm, and, I, and also I admire um, his, his openness to new ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll, we'll link to that debate in the show notes for anyone who's interested in checking, checking it out too. And so they can see it. Um, 
what, what do you think helped you like in, in preparation? I mean, you talked about just being prepared, but was there anything else that helped you, you know, get into the right mindset or even in the middle of the debate that helped, like that helped you, um, you know, inevitably help change Malcolm Gladwell's mind? Well, I think I really, you know, I read through his work um, and in the course of, you know, when, when I first read about the 10,000 hour rule and the work that was behind it, I was convinced because these were writers I admired writing about it. There were scientists, you know, behind it, talking about it. And, you know, I have a, I have a science background, which has probably been the most important thing for my journalism career. Mm-hmm. And so I decided to go read the primary papers and realize the research was not how it was being portrayed. And this was when I was just starting to write my first book. And so suddenly my mind is changing. And that led me to, you know, I, at first I said, well, I, I must be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Like these, these more prominent people um, must be right. And that really led me to keep trying to falsify what I was starting to think. And, and that's a heck of a way to embark on research, you know, where you're, where you're trying to find out like really why you're wrong, not why you're right. And so I had done a tremendous amount of homework and was pretty confident at that point because my, my process for both of my books, for the sports gene and now for range is in the first year, I try to read 10 scientific journal articles a day, every day for the first year. Um, I don't get that done every day, but I get it done most days. And so I was pretty confident by the time I came there that he would not be able to surprise me with any research (laughs) that I wasn't aware of. Mm -hmm. And so then it was just an issue of, um, sort of doing a little bit of prep myself and saying like, well, what do I think will be some of the likely topics that will come up? And, and, and again, this issue of a head start was, was such a no brainer, uh, that, that had to come up because it's such a big topic in, in athletic development. Um, so, so sort of those, but also being committed to, um, trying to make it a productive debate. Um, as I write about in range, there's chapter 10 in range is about people who develop good judgment and the kind of habits of mind and openness and curiosity and attempts to falsify your own ideas that that allow those people to have good judgment, whereas people with many, many more credentials who are much more narrow end up having less good judgment. And I had already read some of that, that famous work by a guy named Phil Tetlock. Um, I didn't write about it for my first book. I write about it a lot in range, but I it was already influencing me. And so I sort of bring that mindset to the debate where you know, no matter how much we disagree, I'm going to try to make every question go in sort of a productive way for the audience. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that took some of the pressure off me, too, because I wasn't like going in. I, I felt I wasn't going to be surprised. And I was going in with a mindset of making it productive and seeing what I could learn and making it interesting for the audience, as opposed to like the more, you know, even though it was framed as this more zero sum debate of 10,000 hours versus mm-hmm. the sports gene, I, I didn't. um you know, there was no reason I had to comport with that mindset. So, so that's not the mindset I went in with. And I think that took some of the pressure off me, frankly. Yeah. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about, cause I love what you were saying about you went into the debate thinking about the audience in mind and making sure that it was a productive conversation. What were, what were some things that helped, that helped make it a more productive conversation you would say? Um, I think, well, first of all, I think both of our, I think we both sort of came in with that attitude where instead of trying to just prove our point, it was, you know, in fact, we ended up asking one another a fair number of questions, like during the debate to 
to try to get at where we thought um, our own ideas had been misinterpreted or where we thought the other person might be misinterpreting our ideas and those sorts of things. Um, and there had been so much written about, you know, anything Malcolm Gladwell writes, but certainly the, the 10,000 hour rule. And some of it I felt was getting away from what he initially wrote. So we sort of wanted to define what we we're even talking about. So actually, th this was actually really helpful right before we were going to go on stage. We had, um, so this is the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. And again, both of these, the 2014 and the 2019 are both on YouTube. Um, and before we we're going to go up, you have like a student, um, sort of usher or I, I guess like where they, they contact you, you know, and, and make sure you're on schedule and then you meet in the waiting room mm -hmm. and all those sorts of things. And right before we were going to go up, and this was the first time Malcolm and I had met, the student said, okay, well, why don't we start with you both introduce, you know, your ideas and then we'll just, you know, take it away from there. And I made the suggestion that, well, how about if we introduce the other person's idea, because then we can start where we'll know like if that person is is misunderstanding or misportraying some aspect of my idea um, and so that we can sort of define our terms well for the audience and go from there. And that turned out to work really well, where we both laid out the other person's idea, which led very naturally into, um, you know, both of us saying a little bit of like, well, you know, here's something I want to emphasize in that or here's something that's, you know, not totally been understood in that. And, and I think it it was both a useful way to start the debate and set a good tenor because we were both, I think, honestly trying to express the other person's idea fairly. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that was actually a great way to start a debate. It was kind of just an offhanded idea, but I, I would totally like recommend that as a way to start debates. Yeah. So I want to get into the book, but I have one other question that I want to ask you real quick. So you mentioned how science has affected how you write. Can you just say a little bit more on that and how it's impacted you in, in your writing? Yeah. So there, there are a number, there are, there are a bunch of things actually, yeah. but, um, in, in the interest, I guess, of, of, of time and, and brevity, um, one of the most important is not something I mentioned, but I, I used to think that, um, you know, I think anyone who reads range and, and to some extent the sports gene will encounter some ideas that they are unfamiliar with. Uh, that's certainly the case for me. I was the science writer at Sports Illustrated and still most of the stuff that went into my first book was unfamiliar to me and certainly almost everything in range. And I used to spend, you know, and I would spend this time reading all these scientific journal papers and looking for ideas. And I would sometimes go down some rabbit hole of something that just interested me that, you know, there'd be some line in some paper that referred to something and would just catch my eye. And next thing I know, I'm down some research rabbit hole. And in many cases, I come up a week later and say, gosh, uh, how did I ever think I was going to write about that? Like, what's wrong with me? Mm -hmm. And I used to sort of chastise myself for that, be being inefficient, basically, and thinking about ways to make my research more efficient. And what I realized, especially through some of the research that went into range, is that if you want to connect disparate ideas and find new ideas, you actually have to embrace some level of inefficiency in your searching, uh, because that's how you connect domains and ideas that people aren't connecting otherwise. And there is no way to weed out inefficiency when you do that. So, you know, I started seeing even, even quotes to that effect from like Christopher Nolan, the director who I love and Eric Larson, a writer who I love, they would say like, 
between projects, I just need to read with no widely with no apparent purpose. And then I find my next project. And so what I used to think of as inefficiency, I started seeing in this research about technological invention, about artistic creation, about um, scientific research, that when things become too narrow and efficient, these real breakthrough ideas no longer happen. And so you actually want this, what, what I call my, my expansive personal search function, where I'm not trying to be too narrow and efficient. And I spend time casting this incredibly broad net. And that's how you connect ideas in a way that, that other people don't. And so the research, in, again, in, in a number of fields that, that I touch on in range from comic books to technological innovation, made me feel like what I thought was inefficiency that I was trying to weed out in my research process is actually like maybe my greatest competitive advantage that, that I have the time and the space to, to roam widely and connect ideas. And, and to me, I think embracing that as opposed to trying to dampen it is one of the reasons why, you know, as a reader, I, I think range is, is a lot more interesting than the sports gene personally, because of its own, its own range, you know, for lack of a better term. Yeah. So just to make sure that I'm following you. So, you know, just as you complete a project, you're, you're just looking for the things that are currently interested in the interesting you and then you just kind of follow that rabbit hole and then eventually you're like okay this is something that I want to write about yeah I mean literally with this book I started with that Roger versus Tiger with that sports thing saying like huh turns out that this Tiger Woods story that we all rest on um is not the norm it's the exception and the Roger Federer pattern is the norm and from there just saying like gosh I'd be interested to investigate this same question in other industries. And that, that's a pretty broad task to say, I'd be interested to investigate that <laughs> in, in other industries. So I have this sort of amorphous idea, but then it's just like, where do you even begin? And so I just have to cast this incredibly broad net, which is daunting and feels so inefficient. But again, based on a lot of the research that's in range itself, um, that's actually what you have to do if you want to connect ideas in a novel way. Mm -hmm. So I think... Most people are probably familiar with Tiger Woods' story, you know, starting really young in golf, but most people probably aren't familiar with Roger Federer's story. Would you be able to just kind of outline his story a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and the intro of Range, of course, is called you know, Roger versus Tiger, mm -hmm. which sort of testifies to the origins of this idea as the first thing in the book. Um, so Roger Federer, he played, he dabbled in about a dozen different sports when he was a kid, you know, everything from skateboarding to badminton. Um, and even once his his parents were, as a Sports Illustrated writer described it, pulley, not not pushy. Um, it actually is kind of funny when he started getting better. His mother was a tennis coach, but she refused to coach him because like he wouldn't return balls normally and just like to like goof around. So so she wouldn't coach him and forced him to continue playing badminton, basketball, soccer before specializing. And even once he got good enough to be bumped up a level with older kids, he declined because his favorite thing was after practice, like talking with his friends about professional wrestling. And so he didn't want to go away from his friends. It's a really funny, funny story. Um, when he finally got good enough to warrant sort of an interview from a local paper, um, he still wasn't specialized. And he, uh, the, the reporter asked him, what will you purchase if you ever become a pro with your first paycheck? And he says, a Mercedes. And his mother is like aghast at this, you know, um, that he would say this. And so she asked the reporter if she can listen to the interview tape. And the reporter obliges. And it turns out that Roger said, mayor CDs in a Swiss German accent. He just wanted more CDs, not a, not a Mercedes. And so his mother was fine with that. And so he kept, you know, years after 
thousands of his peers around the world were already working with specialized coaches, nutritionists. He was still dabbling in four different sports. And obviously he, uh, he turned out okay, but we never hear his story and we always hear the tiger story. So one of the main questions, one of the reasons I use that Roger versus tiger is the introduction is to say, which of these, um, is the model we should extrapolate from more often because we've been doing it from the tiger model and turns out we should be doing it from the Roger model. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think most people, you know, and we've already talked about it a little bit, but most people see the tiger model and go, that's how you become successful. Um, but you know, as we've already alluded to range makes the, the opposite argument that it really is the generalists who, who end up, um, uh, who end up trumping this? Who end up trumping specialists? Why, why is that so? Well, and and I should qualify that a little bit first too, because mm -hmm. clearly it worked for Tiger Woods. <laughs> yeah, right? there, there, there's, a, there's a million paths to the top, and one of the the arguments I make in range um, early in the book that but that sort of is a theme throughout is that not only is the Roger model more common in sports and most other domains, golf is actually a particularly terrible model of almost everything else that people want to learn. So early specialization may well work in golf. Um, there's the jury's kind of out on that. There's not, there's kind of a surprising dearth of scientific data on, on golf development. Um, so it may, it may or early specialization may or may not work in golf. I can't say, but I could believe that it, that it does. Mm -hmm. I can believe it. And partly because golf for people who study skill acquisition, they classify golf as like basically like an industrial task. It's uh, non-dynamic. People wait for each other to take turns. It's very repetitive. Um, it's it's what psychologists call a kind learning environment where all the information is clear, feedback is immediate and perfectly accurate. And so by just repeating it, you get better. And the idea is to repeat known perfect motions with as little deviation as possible. That is very different. Um, not only from other sports for the most part, but all, but even more so from almost everything else that people want to learn. So, so while early specialization, there are some domains where I think it does work. I think they are in the minority and they tend to be non-dynamic domains and outside the sports world, the things that are like more amenable to automation and that type of stuff. So I just wanted to, to qualify that because it, it may work for golf. But the question I was taking on in range is looking through all these other domains and, and what's typical. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned kind learning environments and the other type of learning environment, which um, which falls more under tennis uh, for Roger Federer, is the wicked learning environment, um, which is which is unpredictable, which really doesn't repeat too much. Um, yeah. And so what what have you seen like through your research that helps someone thrive in a wicked environment? Because I would say you know, most of us who are listening find ourselves in those types of environments. For sure, for sure. And even tennis. So in the sports world, tennis, you know, it's dynamic and all these and these sorts of things and changing situations. And you have to use what's called anticipatory skill, where based on like body cues, you see what's happening before it happens because it's happening too quickly um, otherwise. Mm -hmm. But in the scheme of the world, tennis is still very much on the kind end <laughs> of the spectrum where you can there are rules, right? It's mm -hmm. contained in a literal like rectangle and, um, you can see all the information, you get quick feedback. Whereas most of the things that most of us do that that's not the case. So Robin Hogarth, the psychologist who coined this kind and wicked learning environments, he used as like a very wicked example, a physician in New York city who became famous for predicting typhoid fever in patients. 
and time and again, he, before a patient had a single symptom, he would palpate their tongue or feel around their tongue with his hand and predict they would get typhoid. And he would be right over and over. And he got very famous for doing this and wealthy. And as one of his colleagues later noted, he was a more productive carrier of typhoid than typhoid Mary because he was doing it with his hands and carrying typhoid from patient to patient. And so in this case, the feedback was teaching exactly the wrong lesson. So that's like an extremely wicked environment mm -hmm. where there's delay between feedback and it teaches the wrong lesson. Now, most of us aren't in that wicked of an environment either, but we are mostly in situations where feedback may not be constant. It may not always be perfectly accurate. It may not come right away. Some information is hidden. People aren't waiting for each other to take turns. We aren't just repeating the same task over and over again. And in those, those kinds of scenarios that most of us live in, I think the thing to keep in mind is this, this classic research finding that's discussed in chapter five of range that, go, that goes like this. Breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. And we know what training means. Transfer means your ability to take knowledge and skills and apply it in situations that you've never quite seen before. So the better you are at transfer, the more you can take what you have and apply it to something that you have never seen. And the way to be able to do that is to have a very broad training base. So let, let me give you sort of an easy, an example that's easy to conceptualize. In research on um, training uh, commanders to respond to naval threat scenarios, one group of, of trainees um, was given the same scenarios over and over and over again, and they would master them as, as they would figure out how to respond to them, these simulations. And um, be given one type of scenario over and over, master, next type of scenario over and over and over. Another group was given different scenarios every time. And in their training, they were totally frustrated. They felt like they were never getting better because um, always facing something new. And, um, you know, they, they scored their own learning as lower and all these things. Now, when both of these groups were brought back and shown, given, placed in scenarios that neither of them had ever seen before, the group that had the mixed up practice, you know, that, that was in this more wicked practice environment, destroyed the group that had this much more focused practice. And so if they had been facing, you know, a very small number of different scenarios that were contained and narrow, maybe group A that had that focused practice, if they were seeing something they had exactly seen before, would have done better. But if you're in a situation where you're facing, going to face totally new scenarios, what you want is this very broad training so that you learn how to build conceptual models that you can you can bring to bear when you face new situations. Whereas if you're training the same thing over and over again, instead what you acquire is what scientists call using procedures knowledge. Like you'll figure out how to execute certain procedures given a very familiar scenario. But if you want to be, have transfer, if you want to be able to transfer, that's not what you want. You want this different kind of knowledge where you build these conceptual frameworks that you can bend to new situations. And that turns out to be the case in learning math uh, from, you know, from kids learning math where you want to you want to train them sort of broadly and they're kind of frustrated. But you're teaching them instead of how to use procedures, how to match a strategy to a problem um, all the way up to technological inventors where those who make the biggest impact are the ones who work across a large number of technology classes and gain these broad skills that they can then bring to bear on problems that are not only unfamiliar to them, but in many cases, unfamiliar to the world. So, so that's kind of the, the long-winded explanation, but this idea to keep in mind is breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. If you 
are in an area of work where you're not simply doing the same thing over and over, then you want to train really broadly um, so that you can be more creative and a better problem solver when it comes to new situations. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds like you're describing the process of teaching someone just how to think to different scenarios. I, I think that's true in many cases. I think one of the real themes in range is the difference between that, that using procedures knowledge, learning how to do the same thing over and over, and learning um, more general skills that you can that are flexible when when you apply them to new situations. And that's the case from athletes where it turns out that one of the reasons we see this Roger pattern in athletes is that athletes who have played um, a, a larger number of so-called attacking sports when they're younger, you know, sports where like people are trying to get past each other or balls are flying around, stuff like that, um, where it's like basically, you know, you're not you're it's 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 not like golf, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And in those sports, those people then going forward are sort of like people who grow up m multilingual and are then able to pick up other languages better without being told the rules. They're just like that. Once they have that base, they can more quickly pick up any new skills they've never seen, seen before. So they learn new sports much more rapidly. And so, so the analogy works pretty well because it, it looks the same in other domains where you want to build these these more general sort of networks of knowledge and skills that allow you to learn much more effectively going forward and and confront new situations much more effectively going forward. And again, if, if you're in, you know, sort of the industrial, like the pre-knowledge economy world, using procedures knowledge was great for many people because they were facing very similar contained challenges over and over and over. And so there's some research in range where I talk about, you know, where um, where the guy who who won um, R&D uh, magazine's innovator of the year in 2013 got interested in innovation, does this research on innovators and finds that the contributions of specialists, he analyzes like millions of patents are actually declining somewhat. And one of the reasons he thinks that is, is because um, we are we are not kind of facing as repetitive challenges. And now the challenge is more connecting these disparate areas uh, of knowledge as opposed to um, tackling the same problem over and over. Mm -hmm. Are there any other skills that you would say that help, um, you know, help people thrive whenever it comes to thinking that way? Um, I think, well, I think that we have to be aware that the, best, most important. Um, so some of the surprising research for me um, was in chapter four, the chapter called Learning Fast and Slow. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that came through there to me was that the most effective strategies for learning um, are not uh, the ones that feel the best to us necessarily. Mm -hmm. So, and, and in fact, the easier learning feels are the, that we are not so well equipped to um, gauge our own long-term development necessarily, and that that learning strategies that produce immediate progress and that feel good sometimes systematically undermine uh, our long-term development because we're trading that development of those broader skills where you're 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 going broad and connecting diverse ideas and, and getting confused and seeing different scenarios. We're trading that for the immediate progress of a much more narrow challenge, and that undermines our future development. And so 
you know, I, I don't know if I'm going on too long about that, but in that chapter, about learning was one of maybe the most surprising study in the entire book to me, which, which I'm happy to describe or, or shut up so we can. No, please, please go into, please go into further detail about it. Cause as I was reading through the book, that's something um, that particularly stood out to me is that, you know, easy, easy learning is not the best kind of learning. It's the, it's the type of learning that is difficult and almost puts, uh, and almost uh, feels like we need to persevere through it. That is actually the most hopeful learning. So please say more about that. Yeah. And in fact, one of the cognitive psychologists I talked to said, you know, uh, difficulty isn't a sign that you're not learning, but ease is, which I thought was kind of a cool <laughs> quote. But and then he talks about strategies to, you know, to, to make learning more effective. But one of the most surprising studies in the book to me was this one done at the U.S. Air Force Academy, partly because I just I don't think you could recreate this. Like it's an incredible study because the Air Force has this unique system where they bring into the academy, you know, student class every year and the students are random, about 20 students to a math class. They are required to take a succession of three math classes, like calculus one, calculus two, and um, and they are randomized to professors um, and then for calculus one, and then they are re-randomized again to calculus two, and then they are re-randomized again. And the same thing for some engineering courses. So you can really, this was trying to study the impact of of professors. And so they're, you know, the, the traits that the students come in with are spread evenly across classes and they're re-randomized. They all take the same exact test. Uh, the test is graded by committee. So there's no room for a professor to like favor their own students or anything like that. And one of the findings of this study on thousands of students and about a hundred professors was that the professors who were the best at promoting achievement in their own class in calculus one and achievement meant students overperforming um, compared to what would be predicted based on the math skills they came in with uh, this the professors who were the best at at producing that overperformance in their own class on the test systematically undermined the future development of those students so those students would then proceed to underperform systematically in the following courses and not only that but the students would rate the teachers who helped them do well in their class really highly, even though those students, those professors undermine their long-term development. So like the professor out of 100 who ranked, I think, sixth in student evaluations and seventh in how students did on the test in his own Calculus One course was dead last for how well his students did in all the math courses after that. And what the researchers who did this study concluded was that those professors who were whose students were doing the best in calculus one were teaching a much more narrow curriculum basically they knew the procedures that had to be learned for someone to do well on the calculus one test and they focused on teaching those those procedures the professors whose students struggled in their own calculus one class taught in a much more broad way where instead of focusing on procedures they would focus on connecting ideas from different areas um, of math and kind of collective inquiry and, and, and not just giving procedures that worked. And so those students would be frustrated. They would um, rate their professors lower. They would do worse on the calculus one test, but they would, but remember, breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer, but they would be equipped with, instead of a set of procedures they could use, with mental models that allowed them to start figuring out how to match strategies to types of problems they had never seen. So when they had moved on to the more advanced courses, they started overperforming. But that's kind of a scary finding in a way because it means that we are incorrectly wired to understand 
our own best development in some ways because we we want to see immediate progress mm-hmm. the problem is you know as with athletes and math students and so many other domains i, I write about in range the best you know the 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 fastest ways to see immediate progress are to do things in a narrow specialized way which undermines your long term development so I, I just thought that study was was totally fascinating. Then it was basically replicated in an Italian university with a smaller cohort and different types of classes. Mm-hmm. So you had mentioned um, in your research that you had discovered um, some ways to to make learning more effective. What what are a couple of things that people can do to to make sure that the things that they're learning stay stay with them and that they're able to implement them and not simply forget them. Yeah, so I'll give you three sort of the tips that I apply to my my own work that, mm-hmm. that came from that learning fast and slow chapter. Testing, spacing, and interleaving. So testing we think of as just something for evaluation, but we shouldn't because it's actually a great learning tool. But what you want to do is test yourself before you've mastered material. So it turns out that forcing yourself to attempt to generate an answer, the so-called generation effect, um, primes your brain for retaining that information when you do see the answer. So you should test early and often, not after you've mastered material, um, but before you've mastered it, and the feedback should be immediate, not delayed like it is in a classroom. Spacing is just what it sounds like, what I call you know, deliberate practice is this thing people focus on, the 10,000-hour rule. I call spacing deliberate, not practicing. So basically, for a given amount of material, you should put space between your bouts of practice. Um, because again, what you want to do as one of the, as I quoted a cognitive psychologist saying is you want to make it easy to make it hard in your studying. And one of the ways to do that is to leave space between studying. So for example, in a famous study where two groups of Spanish vocabulary learners were, um, given, given, they were tutored on vocabulary. Basically one group, group one got eight hours of intensive study on one day. Group two got four hours on one day and then four hours a month later. So they had the same total study. Eight years later with no studying in the interim, they brought those people back and tested them. And group B that had the spacing remembered 250% more because they had left a space between their study sessions, which caused them to essentially forget some of what they'd learned or, or it moves back. Um, into different parts of the brain. And then when they try to retrieve it, it primes them for this much, much deeper learning. So that's spacing. And lastly, interleaving, which me or, or mixed so-called mixed practice. And this is kind of what I talked about with, um, with the naval simulations. What you want to do is you want to make sure that you're avoiding doing using procedures practice. And to do that, let's say you have, you know, whatever, 20 math problems you need to study. If you can't do any other changes, even if you it's a exact certain problems you have to study, instead of doing four of one type, then four of one type, then four of one type, and four of another type, mix them all up so that instead of learning how to execute procedures, you're learning how to match strategies to the problem. And that's that will help you then apply that knowledge um, when you're facing unfamiliar scenarios, ex- exactly the same as in that naval study. So testing, spacing, and interleaving are three strategies that... Um, you know, I've, I've incorporated into my own learning. Mm-hmm. Are there any other, other myths about specialists that would surprise most people? Um, you know, I think I, I was pretty surprised by some of the research that went into um, chapter 10 about forecasting in the world. So lots of experts, I think some of the most prominent experts in the world are people that we see on television or in the newspaper or online making predictions, whether that's 
economic predictions or political predictions or, you know, financial prediction, whatever. And that's a huge area of work for kind of specialized experts. And it turns out that the more narrow the expert, the worse they are at that and, and the worse their ability to learn. So they become more entrenched in beliefs, even as they make wrong predictions. Um, and I sort of go into, into why that happens, but I think that's an important thing to know because in that research, which, which studied expert predictions for 20 years, about 80,000 predictions in total, because there had to be enough to differentiate just lucky or unlucky streaks uh, from real skill. Um, in that research, there was basically an inverse proportion between how confident experts were and how good their predictions were, and also between um, fame and accuracy, basically. And I think that's a, that's a really, really important thing to know that a lot of the most prominent projections about the world we're getting are basically from the people worst equipped um, to make them, even though their, their credentials would suggest otherwise. Why do you think that's so? Um, well, it's, and the, the work, the 20 year work of Philip Tetlock, um, suggests that as some of these experts who he calls hedgehogs, uh, cause they, they sort of burrow, burrow deep, mm-hmm. um, become more specialized, they, they lose perspectives. Um, so, and they start to learn so much information in their narrow area that they have or can like easily cherry pick enough information to to fit their all encompassing theories so they they tend they've often worked on one problem for their entire career um and so they have this very narrow expertise and whatever theory and and through that that single lens of expertise they build a model of how to see the world and because they're so expert in it, they can always find enough information to fit whatever their theory is. And they don't go outside and look at other mental models. And so interestingly, what Tetlock found in his work was that as those experts, the more narrow the expert, as they accumulated credentials, you know, PhDs and other things like that, they got worse um, to the point where they started to defy things that we know about good judgment. So if you're really be a good, if someone's in Bayesian statistics, for example, you should know that when you make a prediction, if you're wrong, you should adjust your confidence level about that prediction and, um, you know, in, in the opposite direction somewhat about the model that led you to that wrong prediction. And that's how you go forward in the world, you know, trying things and then getting the feedback, whether you're right and wrong and adjusting. And some of the narrowest experts adjust in the wrong direction, meaning they would make predictions that would be wildly wrong and then adjust their beliefs to be even more strongly in favor of the model that had led them astray. And I think that's a point at which someone has become truly blinkered because they are clearly no longer able to learn from their own mistakes um, and are are much more able to just reconvince themselves of their own theories because they have so much um, information for one particular view of the world and so little for any other. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that uh, that we haven't covered yet in your book that you would like to talk about? Um, I think just the... You know, there was a, a general a general theme that sort of came out to me was um, this this feeling, what I call in, in the book, the cult of the head start, right? This idea that if we're not marching sort of confidently toward our goals and we're wasting our time. But if you looked at, you know, the research in comic books, again, was it um, the, the researchers doing it predicted that years of experience and publisher resources and things like that 
number of comic books made would predict how how someone's performance, how valuable their comic books were and how likely they were to make a blockbuster. But they were wrong. It turned out it was the number of different genres they had worked in from, you know, fantasy, sci-fi, nonfiction. Similarly, in technological inventors, it turned out that those inventors who'd worked across a large number of the U.S. patent offices, different technological classes were the ones who made the biggest impacts. Um, LinkedIn just put out some research recently that showed the best predictor of who would go on to become an executive um, was, other than if they were in like a top five MBA program. And, and that the research couldn't determine whether that was because of the student selection or the schools. But other than that, the next best predictor was the number of job functions that someone had worked across in their industry. So each additional job function was equivalent to three years of experience in terms of speeding them you know, toward, toward becoming an executive. And so I think one of the one of the themes of the book is that these things that look like head starts often aren't and things that look like getting behind are are often advantages. Um, and and I think kind of the, the one other thing I would mention is this idea of match quality in the book, this because I, th- I think it's related. This I, that's the term that economists use to describe the degree of fit between an individual, their interests, their abilities and the work that they do. And it turns out that optimizing your match quality or improving your match quality is incredibly important for your own motivation. Um, for how hard you'll work, uh, and for your performance. And the fact is the way people optimize their match quality um, is one of my favorite quotes in the book from Herminia Ibarra, who studies how people do this. She says, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she means is we can't just introspect or take personality quizzes or whatever and know what we should be doing and know our, our talents and our interests. We have to try things. We have to learn who we are in practice and then reflect on those things and then sort of triangulate that way going forward until you get to a spot where you best fit. And that's what she found about how people who optimize their match quality work. They commit themselves to personal experiments, um, trying different things, and they don't say, they don't look around and say, this person has more than I do at a younger age. They say, here's who I am now, here are the skills I have now, here are the interests I have, here are the things I wanna learn, here are the opportunities in front of me, and this one, this is the best one, and maybe a year from now I'll change because I will have learned something about myself. And then they just proceed like that until they get to spots where they can uniquely succeed and feel fulfilled. And so I think we need to drop the idea that these kinds of personal experiments are wasted time when, in fact, they're an investment in match quality that is tremendously important to your long-term development. For the person who's looking to start on this path of becoming a generalist, and uh, what advice would you give them? I would start setting some... Um, some personal experiments. I mean, this is what I did. I started a book of experiments, basically, and where I will say tap people, you know, on, on more on the fringes of my personal network. Um, there's this this research finding people might be familiar with called the strength of weak ties, which is people often find um, new work not based on like their closer people closer into their network because those people they're already sort of familiar with that. It's it's these these people more on the fringes of their network who who know things that that are less familiar to them. And so I've sort of started using that to try to develop new interests. And and I've very um, proactively decided not to be too focused on a next project because I have some sort of personal experiments I wanna do that will help me reflect on what skills I have and what skills I wanna learn. And then I think I'll um, take time to reflect. That's really important. Uh, Reflection is a key characteristic of self-regulatory learners. Um, and, and I'll go forward from those experiments. So I would sort of suggest that everyone start that book of experiments and make sure that you're, you're, you're trying new things and learning about yourself, reflecting on it. 
and so you may not even be setting as with a lot of people in the book they didn't set out to become generalists it's that they set out to learn about themselves or their field and by zigzagging toward the best fit they just became generalists sort of by accident Mm-hmm. Well, before I let you go, uh, I always have a few questions that I love to ask all of our guests. And the first one is, what's one thing that is helping you either personally or professionally right now? Well, I start. I took, um, I was reading Jhumpa Lahiri, you know, great writer's book about how she decided to up and move to Italy and start writing in Italian instead of English. Mm-hmm. And I was curious why she would do that since like, you know, she's famous English language writer. And she said she needed to get away from the sense of herself as an expert and be a beginner again. And so I talk a little bit about it in the last chapter, um, the, the deliberate amateur sort of, um, like scientists, for example, and, and the word amateur originally didn't mean, you know, it, it actually comes from a word that means someone who just like loves a pursuit, not someone who, who isn't that good at it. And some of those scientists who are some of the most impactful in the world that I discussed in the last book they will change fields systematically like every couple of years. And, um, you know, like Andre Geim, who the Nobel prize winner says, he like says, I, I, I like to say, I don't do research. I only do search because <laughs> he moves fields every couple of years. And he says that's psychologically unsettling feeling. Um, but that's how I want to live. And I think that's, you know, and that's, that's his advantage that he connects these ideas that others, um, others don't see. And, so for me, you know, because he wants that feeling of being a beginner again, and I wanted that too. And so I started taking actually a fiction writing course. I said, well, how can I feel like a beginner again without moving to Italy, like, like Jhumpa Lahiri? <laughs> and, and I found it's totally worked. Like I'm totally uncomfortable again. Nothing I've done means anything. Um, and so I think it's helping me sort of get off a plateau of writing and develop some new skills. So you've already given a, a lot of advice on, uh, on learning, but would there be any other advice you give to someone who is eager to learn? I mean, I think, I think you have to allow some inefficiency, like take some time, all, all this, like if you go shopping online for books and things like that, um, the algorithms are great in some ways, but they are analogizing you to like an average number, you know, of people that they think that you are like. And mm-hmm. so you know, I've started to consider one of my competitive advantages to go to like libraries and bookstores and things like that, because those are places where I find interests that I didn't know I had. And I think that's a really powerful thing. And a lot of my most important projects have come out of that. And that's why it resonated with me so much when I saw Christopher Nolan, the director, and Eric Larson, the writer, say basically the exact same thing. Between projects, I need to read widely with no apparent purpose. And that's how they find their next project. And so I, I think, um, we, it, it's a hard question because you're saying, well, how, you know, how do you help people find interest they don't know they have? And there's no simple systematic way to do that. It's not as tidy a message as the 10,000 hour rule. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's even more important. And so I think try to get outside the algorithms that funnel your interests toward this kind of communal average and, and find other ways to expose yourselves to things that you don't know about. If you could have everyone learn one thing, what would it be? Everyone learn one thing. Hmm. Like in, in the entire world? Could be, yep, anything. Whew, that is a great question. Um, I mean, <laughs> broadly speaking, I would mm-hmm. probably like want people to be able to learn emotional regulation because I think it's such an important thing for everything that, um, that we do in life. Um, but I'm not sure if that's the kind of thing that, that, you're, that you're thinking about. No, it's literally just 
just getting perspective from people of what's something that you find important that you wish everyone would learn. So I think that's a great answer. Yep, I completely agree. The world would be a lot better place if everybody uh, learned to regulate their emotions at least a little bit better. And I mean, I also think that that ties in some of with, again, this this research about judgment in Chapter 10, Philip Tellock's research, which is, I, I wish that everyone would go about trying to to maybe not be as emotionally polarized when we're when we're discussing issues that are important to the world and try to collect perspectives because mm-hmm. uh, that's what he finds the people with the best judgment do they collect perspectives and i think that's a really important thing to do yeah who are some of your favorite people to learn from um there's a guy named um michael maubison who uh is a finance guy who do writes these like incredible books and research papers who i just like every time i talk to him or read something i end up with like a whole reading list myself. He wrote this book called The Success Equation that I loved that is actually about like how to figure out with a balance of luck and skill in a certain endeavor. Um, Maria Konnikova, who's a psychology writer, The New Yorker, who again, like every time I leave a conversation with her, oh, and she's, she was writing a book about bluffing and like accidentally became a professional poker player <laughs> last year, having like not even known how many cards were in a deck. And every time I leave a conversation with her, I, you know, I'm like talking into the memo app of my phone about things I need to read. So, um, those two right now are, are big ones. And, and I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot from Gladwell. I have to say, you know, we've had our disagreements, but they've been in many ways, they have been the ideal of what I would hope for in disagreements and that we both keep bringing new information to each other. Um, but also trying to learn from the other person and always civil and productive. And so I always, even when we disagree, I leave our discussions feeling better and more interested. And that's like kind of a rare thing, I think. Mm-hmm. You've, you've already mentioned one book, but what are some of your favorite uh, books or maybe even podcasts or other resources that you've learned from recently? Well, I've loved, so the chapter three in range is about music and uh-huh. it, that um, sparked in me an interest in music in a way that I never had before. So that was a real gift of this book to me is it ignited these interests in art and music because I was trying to report on them that I didn't know I had and changed the way that I go to, um, you know, that I experience a museum, um, and that I experience a concert. And so I've gotten into one of Malcolm's new podcasts is called broken record. Mm-hmm. And it's basically just him and producer Rick Rubin interviewing musicians about what they do. And it's amazing. And I love it. Um, and books. So one of the chapters, um, the chapter about art, and I mentioned this book in that chapter because it really is one of the greatest books I've ever read. It's called Van Gogh, The Life uh, by by Stephen Nafa and Gregory White uh, Smith. And that's just an incredible book. And that led me into this. Um, I got obsessed with that and started reading like all of the letter on Van Gogh letters dot org. You can you can read um Van Gogh's letters. You know, I focused on the ones to his brother. And, and, the, and again, you know. The letters, I excerpt some of them in the book, and then I have the references to them in the back of the book. But to me, those letters he left are like one of the great documentations of the human experience and creative transformation that we could ever possibly have. And so, again, it was like a gift to to have my job be reading those letters. Yeah. And then the last question is, what are you learning right now? I'm doing my online fiction writing course. (laughs) Yep. Cool. Well, hey, David, I know that people are going to want to pick up range and they're going to want to continue to learn from you. Where's the best places for them to go to do those things? Local bookstore. I'm always a supporter of the, the local bookstore, but of course, it's also on Amazon and, and davidepstein.com. There's links to sellers and, and other information there. 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So Caleb, he's a really interesting guest. Tell me what, what's something that you got out of that conversation that you, that was, that was really fascinating to you. Yeah, I think for me, and um, I think we've talked, we've talked about it before on the podcast, but the most effective learning isn't easy. You know Mm. how, and, and especially, you know, I think both you and I, we could be guilty of this as well. Like we're always looking for the best way to learn about something, the fastest way and consume as much content as possible. But whenever you look at the research that, that David's done and many other people have done as well, that's not the most effective form of learning. Like the most effective form of learning is often slow. It takes more time than we would like it to, but it's, it's through those things, it's through, through the patience, through the slowness, through the difficulty that we actually internalize those lessons. And so for me, I think that's probably um, one of the biggest takeaways. And one of the ways in 2019 for me that I've started doing that is um, I have, instead of just, I'm going to read every book of ever about everything, is I have started reading by topic. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, at the beginning of the year, basically the first quarter, I spent reading a bunch of stuff about about race. Um, I read a bunch of classics, um, read Malcolm X, read stuff by Dr. Martin Luther King um, Jr., just everybody. I was reading that stuff. And so I went really deep for a quarter of the year on a subject. And, and, and now I'm kind of moving throughout the year and picking a subject and kind of reading as much as I can about it. And it's not just books, it's articles, it's whatever. And that goes for podcasting too. Um, I've, yeah. So it's, it's depending on, on what your, what your thing is, what you want to consume. I think there's something to be said for, for what Caleb's talking about, the slow plotting where we're move, we're not switching from all sorts of topics and kind of going everywhere and going crazy. We're really doing deep dives and that takes time to be able to sit with material and information. Exactly. Now, if you enjoyed this episode of the Learner's Corner podcast, the best way to make sure that you don't miss our next episode is by subscribing to our play or our podcast and whatever podcast player you use. And you're definitely not going to want to miss next week's episode because we are talking with Who so- is it? Sophronia Scott. And Ooh. she is an author. She's a, uh, a ju- uh, not a journalist, but she's written many essays. And, and she's actually written an essay um, and written things because uh, – her son was actually at the school where the Sandy Hook shootings happened. And mm. so we get into that conversation, how she's process, processed through all of that and how she's incorporated emotion and vulnerability and, and displaying the appropriate level of vulnerability in her writing as well. And so you're going to want to make sure that you don't miss that. And the best way to make sure you don't miss it is by subscribing to our podcast, whatever podcast player you use. And by the way, if we've been providing you value, if you, you find yourself tuning into our show every week, which why wouldn't you? The doleful sound of Caleb's voice alone would be the reason why I would tune in. However, if you find yourself consistently coming to us for content, why don't you just leave a rating and write a review? It literally will take you less than two minutes, and it's honestly the best way you can provide us feedback, meaning that you can share, hey, here are some topics I'd like you to talk about. Here are some things I think you could do better. You could do all that stuff on there. And also, it's the way that if you if you appreciate everything that we, all of the hard work that we put into this thing, it's the best way for you to, to help us out. Because when you give a five-star rating, it actually boosts us in the Apple podcasts and all the other directories of where this podcast is stored. It pushes it up the charts and it helps us out a ton. So go do that. 
So thanks so much for listening to today's episode of the Learner's Corner Podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is not Caleb Mason. It is Todd Hicksonball. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.